Welcome to Sydney Catalyst's podcast series where we discuss important issues in the cancer space, from the controversial to the common sense. Today's podcast is with Professor Paul Timpson, who will talk to us about pancreatic cancer research, as well as his career in terms of his relationship with his mentors, his mentees, and how he has handled rejection from funding opportunities. After completing his PhD in the UK, Paul moved to the Garvin Institute in 2003 to work with Professor Roger Daly, investigating the role of the actin-binding protein, cotactin, in growth factor receptor trafficking in breast cancer and head and neck cancer. Paul was awarded an AstraZeneca Postdoctoral Research Fellowship, allowing him to return to the Beetson Institute in 2007 to work with Professor Kurt Anderson in collaboration with AstraZeneca Advanced Technology Laboratories. This ongoing work has focused upon the development of novel multidisciplinary live imaging techniques to investigate molecular dynamics of cancer cells in vivo. He later returned to Australia and is now a lab leader of the Invasion and Metastasis Lab at the Garvin. So just a few facts about pancreatic cancer before we interview Paul. Pancreatic cancer is the eighth most common cancer in both men and women in Australia, excluding non-melanoma skin cancers, and it is the fifth most common cause of cancer death overall. Unlike other cancers, treatment options for those diagnosed with pancreatic cancer are limited. It is incredibly difficult to diagnose as it has no distinct symptoms or clear early warning signs. Also, no screening tests are currently available, like they are for breast cancer, for example. When a patient is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, the disease is often so advanced, making it harder to treat. Therefore, most people will not live past a year after diagnosis. Therefore, the research being undertaken by Paul and his colleagues is extremely important for better understanding and for treating this pervasive disease. So this is my interview with Professor Paul Timpson. I hope you enjoy it. So my first question is, what is a day in the life of Paul Timpson? Oh my goodness. Um, controlled chaos, I guess. Um, I got up, do the kids run. Um, I'm already probably read emails um, and already know where I'm going from there, I guess, or I hope so. Um, it's become more chaotic now that I've taken on a new role as the team leader here for cancer um, at the garden. So I used to look after my own group. Uh, now it's more looking after a department and again, also larger scale roles now um, for the Garvin Institute as a, kind of, as a whole under executive leadership team. Um, so it's, it's changed very definitely. Um, since even one year ago, so it's, it's always changes. But um, at the same time, my group consists of what I would class as kind of three key themes driven by postdocs, where someone will look at, for example, extracellular matrix in pancreas cancer, someone will look at advanced imaging, for example, and other people may look at um, breast cancer and different types of cancer. So we kind of um, expand, and I think that the key for me was it was becoming too hectic. And so I changed that to actually allow those kind of senior up-and-coming superstars, I call them, or postdocs, um, to actually look after individual PhDs, master's students, research assistants. And so therefore you can streamline uh, that work so that you're not constantly bombarded by 
multiple people. So we have a team of about between 11 and 15 that fluctuate. So that's quite a lot for one individual. So yeah, I've tried to spread the load. Um, and look, I think that works much better. It allows me to um, move to the next stories that may not be um, right there on the front of our minds right now, but it will be for the you know, for grants, for example. Okay. So my, my next question is about pancreatic cancer. So you've, you stated in an interview a few years ago, I think it was in 2017, that it's embarrassing for scientists to allow this disease to go on with such dire outcomes. Why, why is it so embarrassing? Um, I think it was just, yeah, as, as many people call it, the silent killer, and we just didn't know what to do. And like when people talk about the changes in breast cancer, it's quite amazing, the changes in many other types of cancer. Pancreatic cancer has just stagnated for decades. Um, and that's why it's embarrassing at the time to actually talk to the public and say why have you not moved that one forward um, and again that's what attracted me to it I didn't originally work in pancreas cancer I worked on specialising I guess in metastasis and the spread of disease and so for me pancreatic cancer was a very easy one to jump to because <clears throat> at diagnosis many patients have already got that spread um, it's a key killer in the disease not only the primary tumour um, and I guess around 20% of people, I guess, can get surgery, but um, inevitably they will eventually succumb to metastasis. So it was something that I felt very strongly about. And I thought that it was almost like a low-lying fruit where if the, if the outcome in this disease is so low, then any tiny change is actually going to change this disease significantly. So, you know, you increase this disease by 5%, that doesn't sound much, but in a disease like pancreatic cancer, that's a significant hit. Um, and I think, especially working here at the garden, especially with the expertise in pancreatic cancer and working with people like Marina Pajic, who's really at the forefront of personalised medicine, the concept of personalised medicine is really um, important in this disease because you may have a very small proportion of patients that, for example, have BRCA mutations or DNA replication, which doesn't sound a lot, but if actually you just pick off that um, small percentage, you can actually make a massive impact on the disease. So it goes both ways. That embarrassment basically says we should do something here. And actually 5% is a big difference in this disease, whereas other diseases, we still want to improve by 5%, but it may not make a global impact. For example, like Abraxin, the gym site of me, um, it doesn't seem much to someone on the outside, but that was significant. Again, I think that's embarrassing that that's the best we've got, um, or almost the best we've got. Um, and I think we need to move this disease. And I, I believe that um, small jumps in this disease will make a big impact. And again, one day we do hope that there is something that comes along that makes a massive impact. But right now, I think we have to look at the individual. Do you still agree that pancreatic cancer is a death sentence? For many, yes. Um, not for all. Um, if it was for all there, I wouldn't be doing what I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, we need to, again, start to do clinical trials. And we, we still need that basic science to understand how best to treat these. And that's exactly what we do here at the Galvin. And we've been very privileged to get uh, grants that now translate that bench to bedside like my kind of large scale goal 
for the next five, ten years. If not, one year. <laughs> that needs to start happening. Um, and it has happened. So we're very happy to be in this space, actually. So you have a very positive outlook in the sense that you do foresee a time when pancreatic cancer won't be a death sentence for so many people. Correct, yes. But that is going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of investment. It's going to take a lot of people working not only in the pancreatic cancer space, but actually repurposing knowledge from different diseases. And I think that's become very evident um, from other diseases to quite easily transfer this over. And again, when you've got such a dismal outlook, um, there is opportunities for those um, small changes to actually transfer from different diseases. So I think it will make a big difference. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I hope. And, you know, that's what in my career, I think it will be a very big Sure. So I want to ask about your experience um, at the Garvin. What's it been like for you? I love the Garvin. <laughs> so I came here as a postdoc, uh, fell in love with the place, love the fact that you can work in cancer, immunology, diabetes, any disease, you know, it's all within one roof. Um, love the environment. Actually, for a career, decided to leave because it was for the best to actually go and learn something that no one could A, do at the garden and B, um, it wasn't really a big thing in this country, which is our expertise, which is intravital imaging in pancreatic cancer. I didn't move to do pancreatic cancer. I moved to CIUK, the Beatson Institute in Glasgow, uh, which is actually where I did my PhD originally. Um, a completely new institute, completely new um, um, unrecognizable place to where I did my PhD. However, they did have some of the best microscopy there. I learned that, brought that back, um, and it's been fantastic. The Garvin has other expertise in intravital imaging and immunology sphere with uh, Professor T. Fan, and him and I have worked uh, closely now to actually start to make imaging um, a flagship at the Garvin. I think that's something that I've enjoyed doing. Um, I love coming to an institute where you accidentally worked on pancreatic cancer in Glasgow with the plan to come back to give intravital imaging um, in this country. And by chance, I moved to pancreas cancer and the Garvin, as you know, is very famous for the work in pancreatic cancer with the APGI. Um, and so that's been great to actually be able to take model systems, intravital imaging, and then that knowledge, again, with my close collaborator, Marina Pajic, um, to actually take personalised therapy and actually really start stratifying who gets these treatments and having a tailored approach. So I thoroughly enjoyed having all the technology and all the capacity all under one roof um, and something that I would really struggle to find in other places. But, you know, never say never, right? Yeah, no, it sounds like your team is very busy. But I want to ask about, you know, 2020, which was obviously a crazy year. Did, did COVID-19 have an impact on the research in your lab? Yes, of course. Um, I think it impacted everyone. Um, we did remarkably well in 2020. We had to work and um, so often not seeing each other. Um, some people in different parts of the Institute just doing that type of work and going home. Um, other people come in at different times. Um, I'm a very social person, so I almost feel like I need people around. So I personally found it difficult. Um, people in the lab found it difficult, but we have got so many great projects that we continued them. Um, 
it might have helped actually in some ways that me being forced away meant that I had to actually write papers that you know I was reluctant to write. <laughs> um, and that's now come to fruition for this year um, already. Um, and again, I really enjoyed the idea of being forced into a kind of lockdown at some point. Very, very rare for me to actually say such a thing, but um, it did force me personally into writing things that I didn't necessarily want to write. Um, for the team, I think it was difficult because my team um, does work together. Most of our projects involve so many different technologies that not one individual can do it. And so we had to work um, independently, but using Zoom uh, and, and using um, different shifts where actually the individuals were not there to uh, look at the nuances, I guess, of an experiment. So that caused obviously some problems, but um, we, we fought through it. I think it was a successful year in terms of research, output, the experiments we managed, um, you know, we had to reduce a large number of animals that we don't want to have to do, but we have to actually work with the garden and the animal facility here. So there was a lot of things that we had to streamline. And I guess it focuses you on what is really important rather than trying to do everything all at one time. So, yeah, hopefully so 2021 is going the other direction, but I'm yet to be fairly convinced. So is everything back to normal now as much as it can be in the lab? As much as it can be, we can socially distance as much as possible. We still do any, we just basically follow any guidelines. Um, I think we're running at 85 to 90%. Um, and I think that's, we really did do a tremendous job in 2020 to still run at a high percentage, even though um, individually we weren't there yeah. for so much time. So your actual time at work was streamlined to say, get all these experiments done and go home. And then you do the analysis at home. So you may not be there, but you're actually, some people probably found that um, easier. And actually, I think that, you know, the future might be, you might have some sort of hybrid lab for quite a while. Um, and I think that, you know, we learn about each other. You actually think that some people actually enjoy that more than others. And so you actually have to look towards making sure that everyone's happy where, um, where they're working, their times and their isolation. So, you know, it's it was a it was a time that I wouldn't like to go back to, but in terms of it's hard enough to run a group with different types of personality, but then to add a really stressful time like that is um is something that's quite difficult for everyone. Um, but I think the garden did a great job in actually looking after both people's work and also their mental health. Right. Absolutely. I want to ask about um, early career researchers because I do think that a lot of our listeners will be early career researchers and you have been a huge supporter of them. I want to ask, uh, what do you look for when you are inviting someone to your lab? Um, they just have to be smarter than me, which is not very <laughs> hard. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's the hardest thing, actually. You can you, you, you write a grant, You've got your idea and you love that idea and you know it's going to work. It's really hard to then say, I'm going to recruit someone I don't know, let the reins go and let that person take over that job. So two things I like to actually see that I can actually discuss and freely talk to them, almost like a, a peer or a colleague, so that I can actually say, can we genuinely sit down and draw 
or a simple piece of paper, ideas, concepts. Um, obviously, look at all the other stuff, like um, referencing the papers I've done before, but also I need to have different skill sets. So, you know, sometimes I'll have someone that's amazing with animal models, other person that's amazing in the imaging sphere. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, tech involved in genomics, but it's exactly the same in imaging. So you need to have complementary skills within that team. And I think gone are the days when one individual paper has one person that did everything. And I think that's where we have a strength, where we've got people that can come from almost physics background and pure biology um, and genetics, etc. So I kind of look at that. But I would honestly say for me, my role is I probably I think I'm being ambitious here, but I think I have 20 to um, 40% say in who joins the lab. The rest of the lab talk to them. The rest of the lab um, actually spend quite some time. And so I do have some say. <laughs> uh, but individually, I think we need to fit into the current lab. That's very easy saying now because we've an established lab. But at the beginning, you know, that's probably the, the, the hardest decision for those early career people because they've moved on, they've got their own group, and now they've got that small amount of money and they can only afford a research assistant, say, and a PhD. Um, or a postdoc if you're lucky. And, you know, I feel that that one-to-one -one relationship and the ability to talk um, through the ideas is there. And I think you just have to hope that they've got the skill set that they say they have. <laughs> and that's sometimes, that's sometimes hard, but I think the input, that, the amount of input that I would put into an individual almost slows down the process for a while, but as time goes on, you actually gain a lot. Yeah. So if, I mean, you've been very informative with your answer, but I'll ask this next one, just in case there's anything to add. What advice would you give for people who want to work with you or, or just generally who want to become cancer researchers? Um, I'm a cancer researcher to work with me. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, people come to my group and they might not necessarily have the skills. I've actually hired people that haven't worked um, particularly in cancer, but actually can see how you can apply that technology to cancer. Um, the benefit to that, and I think that's one of the benefits to our group, is we can be unbiased. So if, for example, we're looking in an optical window deep inside the abdominal cavity at pancreatic cancer, we are unbiased. We can image and see basically what is actually going on in the high fidelity setting rather than doing guesswork. So I think that's something that... Um, you know, you don't need to be a cancer researcher to actually jump into that sphere as long as your skill set can be actually used there. Yeah. That will then give you that real step up, I feel, where your likelihood of being skipped on a paper or your unique approach is something that you can actually carve out your own niche. And so that's kind of a really important thing that I think every group leader would say is like, you know, gone are the days where a group leader works on one protein. I mean, there are some things that still exist, I guess, but now it's a case of what is that niche? What is that specific thing that you can do that no one else can do? So I don't individually think that I look for someone that just comes from a cancer background. I look for someone that has an approach that I've never seen or that I don't think has actually been applied. And we can almost sometimes steal that ability from a different area and pull it to cancer. And that's the, that's the beauty of science, right? Yeah. 
that you actually can appreciate um, other types of science, which again is a great thing with Garvin. So, you know, I'll go and listen to a talk on diabetes, not something I work on, but I've actually now started projects in the sphere of metabolism or neuroscience, for example, and pancreatic cancer, stuff that I would never have done before. So my advice is be very, very open. Um, it's very easy to say that now because we have an established lab. At the beginning, I had to be much more strict. But even then, that didn't last very long because, as I say, I kind of enjoy chaos. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about your own kind of career. Have mentors helped you along the way? What kind of impact have they had on your career? Yeah, that's probably one of the most important things you don't realise at the time. Um, so originally I did engineering, so I actually was good in maths and physics, went to university, and so I'm a basic university dropout. Um, best thing I ever did in my life, because I knew what I wanted to do. So I basically became a paper boy for a year, <laughs> and then went back. What's a paper boy, sorry? Oh, you know, oh, sorry, I deliver newspapers. Oh, okay, delivery, okay, a delivery boy, okay. <laughs> for a year, the greatest job I've ever had. <laughs> and then I went back to university. Um, obviously, university, you don't have many mentors, but um, my PhD was, uh, I, I'm still in contact with those mentors. And the way they treated me from the very beginning was, again, that idea of a peer. You know, they're still professors, they, they're world famous, but they didn't treat me like that within that lab. And again, that was fantastic from, again, from the Beatson and CIUK. Coming to the garden, worked with Roger Bailey, he's been a great inspiration again for me. So. Margaret Frame and Val Brinkley from the Beatson and Roger Bailey here were mentors and are still now classes as mentors, but probably more friends. So that's great. And again, it's great to know that you can actually phone them and, and say, well, what should have been this scenario? Especially in my new move to this kind of larger role, um, I can quite easily pick up the phone and they, they're all in those large scale roles now. So that, that mentorship goes on for life, I think, but it eventually becomes a a friendship and I believe um, I'm doing the same to my group. I'm looking out um, to my group now wondering if they would agree but um, I think I spend a significant time with my group um, both um, in both social and scientific settings and I think that that's something that just by chance I've had in my own career. Right. I've almost copied the mentorship that I received um, and I think sometimes People do that when they like it. Other times you can have a very difficult mentor that can also strengthen you and say, I won't do that. But um, for me, the opposite, I just, fantastic mentorships and I've thoroughly enjoyed it and it's continuing and I think it will continue. So now that you are on the other side of the mentoring relationship, do you have a similar approach to your mentees that your mentors had with you? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Um, and I think I do do that. Again, it's very hard, um, you know, looking through your own lens. <laughs> you know, you might see that they actually disagree. Um, I do do that, yeah. Um, and I'm very passionate. And again, both, um, all mentors are hard. Again, I actually should mention Kurt Anderson, who was the person that taught me intravital imaging. Um, you know, he, again, that's, he's also a mentor and a friend and completely looked at things from, Maybe that chaotic aspect is something that I really gained from Kurt, which is it's perfectly okay to go somewhere that you have no idea about. 
Um, so you can actually use imaging. That's why I love imaging, I guess, is, you know, it's inherently something I love. Um, I'm a very visual person. And so again, if you go down the route of doing something you, you love, it's much, much easier to do, right? Yeah. Easier said than done. But again, I think that to then give that to others and say, look, I'm, I really don't care that you're 24 years old. You can use this um, $1.5 million microscope and I will pay for everything and all these experiments and I can totally trust that you know what you're doing as long as we speak freely and talk about things and, and look at the problems all and then... <laughs> <laughs> so if there are any senior researchers that are thinking about starting their own lab, what could you tell them? Is there anything that you didn't, you wouldn't have predicted that is a part of your now day-to-day -day life? Uh, yeah, I think I naively as a postdoc used to look at my mentors and look at them in their big, beautiful offices with a glass window and, and they just had all the graphs coming to them and I was like, I would love just constantly being given data. Um, it looked lovely. And then I became that person and I realized, oh my gosh, it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. Everyone's life, somehow you are responsible for their life, their career. Um, I think you need to always remember that and remember how vulnerable you were before. Um, it's always difficult to start a group. It's like starting a company and you might be unbelievably good in the lab, but this idea of, um, untying and allowing other people to actually take control is something that's very difficult for some people. So some people can be a fantastic lab-based scientist and very difficult at managing um, because they don't want to let go of those uh, reins. That's something I have to learn. And you slowly can do that. Um, again, other people can be mediocre in the lab, which I most definitely was. Um, but it's more about how can you actually manage people. And again, one great thing I've really learned now is that we all see it when we're postdocs or PhDs that there's different personalities. So some people will respond to a completely different way of running a project to others. And so you have to actually individualize so you can't have everybody work the same way. So some people <clears throat> work really well into the night. Some people want to come in early and go home early. It's not even just about time, but it's about the way they work. Some people can only run one project, but really focused in detail. Others want to run three simultaneous projects. What kind of worker are you? Do you prefer to work into the night or do you prefer to leave early? And I prefer to, mm, good question. Um, both, depends. So I would say in a normal day, I would like to have a reasonable um, rules around work. I don't like to work late into the night. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to grants and it becomes to those really high stress points, then I just completely switch off from the world. And yeah, I'll be working late into the night um, before all that. And I'm actually happy there because then it's silent and, it's, and I can actually think of nothing else. So there's a, it fluctuates. I definitely have to have both scenarios. I can't work um, constantly into the night, but I also can't um, do the other way around either. So, you know, like, correct. Right now, for example, I'm thoroughly enjoying writing papers so I can actually control that. But when it comes to grants, you know, that's when everything goes out the window. And 
No, I do want to ask about grants and the rejection that can come from that. Government funding is limited when it comes to awarding research grants. A lot of applications get rejected, and this can leave researchers feeling very disillusioned. In your career, have you ever encountered this sort of rejection? And if so, what advice do you have for people who are feeling despondent because perhaps their applications have not been accepted? Yeah, that's the, that's the hardest question in science, right? Um, like, I think that people at the Garvin would probably say Paul gets lots of grants and Paul probably always got lots of grants. That's completely not true, right? Mm -hmm. um, I tried to get a fellowship in Australia, from Australia, sorry, from Scotland. Um, completely failed. It was heartbreaking. Um, did it again. Completely failed. It was heartbreaking. And it was in the third time that I got, it was almost like, this is it. You know, if I get this fellowship, I'm in science. If I don't, I'm too old. Um, and that was really quite scary. And I think, uh, you know, I was very lucky to get that grant. Again, we've had very good success, actually, in the groups recently. Um, but I also have to deal with individuals within my own group and my own team and my own department where they've written a fantastic grant and they haven't got that grant. And again, it's like, I think you just have to get back on the horse and try again. Um, and again, taking lots of people take feedback, but they take feedback far too late in the game. Mm -hmm. So as soon as um, the grant's outcome um, actually arrived, I've probably within one day already started discussions about all the other grants and going right for next year. Okay. Regardless if I get the grant or not, even if I get the grant, you then think, well, you've just got a grant. Why don't you just focus on that? But I've always got other ideas, and I've already said here are the key key aspects of the grant that I must achieve by you know February, March, depending on the grant itself. So grants never end, unfortunately. That pain never ends, but it's the same with publications. You know, we're now doing very well with publications, but there was a time where I just couldn't get anything across. Um, Intravital imaging is a massively exploding field, but back when I started, it wasn't. So it was very hard to, for even many of the reviewers to actually understand the benefit of it. And now that's completely changed. So it comes in waves, I would definitely say. And you're going to have a great wave. And I think that's the time that you work really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And then when it's difficult, sometimes you still have to work hard, but maybe sometimes you actually have to take a step back and see what, if you're lucky enough to get the reviewers' comments on your grant or your paper, to actually take a step back and say, like, maybe I need to actually angle this differently. But, yeah. you know, every grant I write, um, I'll probably hate it. I actually have to give it to people and finding that mentor that you trust, not someone that may be a, a very senior, eminent scientist that everyone respects, because sometimes you don't get the feedback mm -hmm. from them. But you may actually have a friend or a postdoc um, or a colleague that's more junior that's actually really good at going into that detail. Yeah. And it's very hard to take feedback, but um, those that do tend to find a way to write that grant. And once it's there, it's almost, it can be a little bit like Lego. Once you know the simplified structure, um, that's the, the difference. And there's a real art between paper writing and writing a grant, because a grant has to be very simple and easy for a panel of 18 people to stand up and discuss. Yeah. The paper has to actually show very advanced work and 
unbelievable detail, etc. It's a very different um, review process. I think uh, people should really look at. I see it as you've got multiple types of writing, writing for papers, writing for grants, mm -hmm. and then writing for fellowships is a completely different game again. Because some people don't want to be arrogant, but if you're not arrogant um, in your fellowships, you're actually not showing off enough. Mm -hmm. And if you're not showing off, it's going to be hard for the panel to appreciate you. So that feels very uncomfortable. And I think that's what I failed in my first fellowships. And then having a look at other successful fellowships, I realized, okay, I can see how to write that now. And actually, so yeah, those are three skill sets that you need to learn to be a, a group leader. And some of them are inherently easy for some and others are very difficult, but eventually you'll have to become good, unfortunately, at all three. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. Basically, that you need to understand your audience, who's going to be reading what you're writing, you need to take feedback immediately once you've received it, if you're lucky to receive it. And then you just need to persevere. Yeah. And I think it's great that you've shared your experience of rejection because so many times we feel that our mentors, they're sort of, they're amazing. They've never experienced any of these sort of disappointments, but that is not the case. No, absolutely. And I think that I am very aware that I'm on a really good run right now. Mm -hmm. I work extraordinarily hard because that run might run out. <laughs> Um, but, you know, you can reinvent yourself. And um, some of the greatest scientists that I've seen around completely reinvent themselves again. And sometimes that's really good once you're there because actually you need to move. You need to be always, almost outpacing yourself. But enough that people can come along and enjoy the ride and actually want to give you that money. Um, it's a fine balance. And, you know, you have, to be able, you have to be able to write enough grants to get enough money. Mm -hmm. you, know, you also have to have the team that can take those grants, those ideas, publish those papers, because when you write your next grant four years down the line, they're going to be looking at what did you achieve with that money last time and where is it actually going? And um, I've now moved into a different sphere where I'm now having to write grants, large program grants with multiple people from different states, different institutes and globally. And so that then is a completely new skill set where you actually have to jump in and see strategically picked correct person that would actually work for the grant. And again, people want to see why is this team completely different to any team we could have formed within the Garvin, for example, within any other institute. And so then you start bringing in, you know, you've got that physicist, you've got this person in chemistry, you've got this, you've got the medic. That can actually take those clinical aspects of the disease and say this project needs to align with what we would actually do in the clinic and essentially that's what we're all doing we're either doing basic science to fully understand or sometimes trying to actually repurpose drugs or actually show how we can use drugs and um, for example pancreas cancer or breast cancer so that's something that um, i am learning there and again failed so many times on those pro, pro, program grants that it is, it's again, not embarrassing, but you have to just have a thick skin and move on and do it again. And that's exactly what we've done and we've now managed to achieve it. And that's taken me eight years since I've moved to um, Australia. So, I mean, I'm still learning. So my final question is, this is a very stressful line of work that you're in. 
what do you do for leisure in order to kind of rejuvenate and remain sane in this really, really difficult job that you're in? Yeah, remain sane. Is, um, that's a that's a large achievement for me if I can do that. Um, I like like I run a lot. Um, I actually find it quite um, not relaxing, but I can finish the day um, by running quite often. Um, especially now that we're doing Zoom, I can actually have early morning runs and actually do some meetings via Zoom or just via phone while running. I find that quite um, relaxing. It can actually you feel that you're actually getting a benefit on both sides because you're running, but you can still actually talk. Um, I I used to surf, but now I've had an injury, so I, I really miss surfing, so I have to find other things. Um, a lot of scientists hang out with scientists, which is great, because um, you can get a lot of sanity there, especially as a new group leader, to actually be able to talk to someone else who's got the same problems as you, because suddenly from a postdoc to a group leader, you think you're the same, and you, but you're now just moving into this new area and you need to actually talk to someone at your own stage to say, are you feeling this? I just think this is really hard to sustain a group this size. And you actually find that the other person feels the same and it's actually quite helpful. But I also try and hang out with people that are not scientists so that, because um, they don't care. <laughs> yeah, I actually like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is produced by Sydney Catalyst. Music is by Ling Zijun and is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial and non-derivatives license. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>